Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib, and today I'm joined by podcast regular and good friend Andrew Burton, and we have a special guest for you. And let's bring our guest. It's uh, Christopher Clary, one of the most insightful and articulate voices in the sport today. And uh, let's not waste any further time in the introduction. Chris, thanks for doing this. And me and Andrew are really excited for this conversation. Hey, I was impressed with your guys' logistical flexibility. We got it done and I'm glad to be here and, and it's an honor. Thank you. I believe me, honors all ours and I'm sure the listeners will be excited for this one. So I'm going to tee this conversation off after 30 plus years with the Times and it's uh, you know, sister concern uh, publication in France. You're calling time and now transitioning into a full-time author. So I'm sure everybody who follows you knows this, but there could be an occasional person in India or somewhere in Philippines. <laughs> so just fill us in, you know, why are we making this decision? And and podcasters like me are probably more happy because somewhat you might become more accessible. That's the feeling I have. But uh, floor is yours. Kick us off here. Well, thanks, Akib. You know, definitely a difficult decision after all these years. I mean, the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune, which was the you know, sister publication in Paris all those years, um, really were dream jobs, both of those. And they've all kind of been interlaced over the years. They're, you know, the same company. And I've been writing for the Times, you know, basically since I was in my mid-20s. And now I'm in my late 50s. So it's uh, it's a huge change just in terms of your own identity. You know, you've, that's, you've been saying, hi, I'm Chris Clary with the <laughs> New York Times or the International Herald Tribune for such a long time. I have to keep stopping myself and say, hey, I'm just Chris Clary now. And, and that's that's fine. That's great. But it's a definitely an adjustment. And, and as far as the process of making the decision, I got a chance. I have dreamed about writing books, you know, probably like many of us. And, and I assume probably you both have written them. I, I had never written one that I thought was a real genuine book. I'd done some Davis Cup yearbooks back in the nineties on top of my regular job. That was interesting, but it wasn't a real book in my mind. And I wanted to do one for a long time. And, and John Wertheim helped put me in touch with somebody a few years back as an agent. And we talked about what I had on the table and it became very clear then that the Roger Federer material that I had and the time I'd spent covering him and the fact that there really hadn't been in, at least in the U S market, a really high quality biography of him. That was the best thing to start with. And so we did. And the book has had, you know, much more success than I would have even thought was possible. It's been a real, real hit in a lot of different places internationally and sold lots of copies and got some, you know, pretty decent reviews. You're always going to get some bad ones, but that whole process for me, you know, I heard a lot of warnings and a lot of, you know, uh, potential red flags being put, but I had an overwhelmingly positive experience with 12, the publisher and with, um, with my agent, Susan Canavan at a Waxman literary. And it was just a very upbeat, wonderful thing. And I felt like I was able to really use, so much more of my voice and my knowledge and uh, in that long form perspective. And I really uh, just loved it. And uh, I felt like definitely wanted to do more. And I got a leave from the New York times to do that book. It wasn't a terribly long one. I could have probably used a bit more, but I got a leave and they were very nice to do that. And, you know, I, I recovered from doing the book and did all the promotion and everything. And, and I have a list of other ideas. It's pretty long. And um, it came time to go back to the publisher and we had another conversation. It goes, you know, we're, we're excited for you to do another one. And, you know, what do you think? And I just feel like uh, with I'm going to do a book on Nadal, which sounds like, okay, well, that's pretty obvious. But in a way for me, it wasn't. I had a lot of other ideas as well. But I just feel like Rafa at this stage is kind of where Roger was 
Um, when I made the decision to write the book on him, he's at the latter stages of his career. Could be over, might not be, but the body of work is done. And I've just had a lot of access to Rafa, had a lot of thoughts on Rafa, written a lot of articles on Rafa. And also, you know, I've spent a lot of my adult life in Paris. I speak French. I've covered Roland Garros over 30 times. So I just felt like a, a book that I would regret not writing at some point with all those different intersection points. And so it was, it was kind of as simple as this. I said, I'm at this stage where I, I want to write another book. I went to the Times who've been great to me over all these years. I've um, been very fortunate. And I said, I know it's out of the ordinary, but could I get another leave? And uh, understandably, they said, you know, we'd love to give you one, but we can't do it for you and not for everybody else. So I'm afraid we can't. So many people are extraterrestrials in my view, and they're able to you know, write a book while keeping their full-time job. That's not me. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a, a monotask kind of guy, and I get into something and I do it. And I found it, I find it really challenging to split my brain that way. And I didn't want to write a book that way. So I had to make a decision and ultimately I wouldn't have made the same one 20 years ago or 10 years ago, but at this stage in my career and uh, where I'm at and knowing I have a limited amount of time left to write the kind of books I want to write. Um, that's why I made the choice. And it, but it was very hard. Definitely. Absolutely. I wish you all the best. And uh, just a quick follow from Clary fans out there. So will this change your equation with following the pulse of the sport. Uh, how will that change over the time when you are authoring a book on Nadal and other subjects? How closely you plan to follow week in, week out, what happening on, what's happening on ATP and WTA? Well, my biggest passion and, and interest as a journalist has certainly been tennis. And I've covered many, many things in my sports writing career. Most of the big global events because of my job as a columnist with the Herald Tribune and as a, you know, an international sports correspondent with the Times. But tennis is a thing that I I know and, and and love the best. So I'm definitely going to stay connected. That being said, the next few months, because of writing the Nadal book, it's going to be pretty intense. And um, am I going to be able to break down all the forehand patterns of the current tour during that period? Probably not. And uh, I'm going to miss that, but I'm, I'm going to need to focus on the, on Rafa and the book and, and that thing to some degree. But I, um, I do intend going forward to hopefully keep attending the majors and, and to write uh, for this uh, Substack a site that I started called Tennis and Beyond, which has uh, been a lot of fun so far. I've had a fair bit of time for it till this point, but I'm not going to have as much time for it in the next few months. But I, I intend to keep it going after the book manuscript is finished. And um, and I'm, I'll always be connected to tennis as long as I've got a pulse, for sure. And uh, But I'm not going to be on the beat the way I was with the Times, you know, living and breathing at 24-7 and waiting for the late night phone call of you know, who retired or who got in trouble or who didn't and those sorts of things. But I want to focus more on these long-form projects and, and do them well. Sure. Over to you, Andrew. I'm sure we can, you know, make the best of his time now. Go ahead. So, Chris, if this were a movie instead of a uh, a podcast, this would be a dissolve now as to, to sort of a flashback. We'd go back about, uh, oh, 30-odd years or so, and it's... I don't want you to completely recapitulate the the <laughs> article that you did in the Times, uh, including the kerfuffle over the, your first byline for the Times. But I, I'd, I'd like to take you back and, and talk a little bit about your origin story, how you got into journalism, uh, what it was that uh, that drew you into it. Was it something that you you wanted to do from high school or college? Were you distributing? newspapers on sports uh in in middle school so 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 talk us through how you, how you how you got to the point that you 
had that phone call in Paris that got the, that launched you into the times. Mm. Well, you're nice to ask Andrew. No, I mean, uh, to tell you the truth, some people are, are multi-talented and have lots of different things they can do and, and um, lots of strings in their bow. I am not one of those people. <laughs> I've got a couple talents. You know, I, I loved, uh, loved playing sports as a kid. I was, I was a decent high school athlete and decent division three college athlete. And I loved writing. I always did. Uh, I was a voracious reader from an early age. And my mother was a, a literary type person, um, a Smith graduate who loved words and, you know, read to me constantly as a child. So I was in love with the, with books and in love with, with writing and, um, and my connection with sports in a lot of ways and my enjoyment of, of that was something that helped me as a Navy kid. My dad was a career Naval officer as my grandfather and great grandfather were as well. So we were always moving around always in a new community, a new place, having to make new friends. And I, I wrote this in the master, my book on Federer. I said, I think in a lot of ways, tennis saved me because it was my way to come into a new place, a new community and, and make connections with the, the kids in the town and, and kind of get a, a little group right away of people that I could you know, be part of my tribe in a way. And so I was in, subconsciously very grateful for that, I'm sure. But I always felt a strong connection with sports and the printed word and my childhood happened to coincide, like many of us, my age with Sports Illustrated's kind of golden age of sports writing. And I remember just going to the public library, wherever town we happened to be in, whether it was Washington, D.C. or San Diego or Honolulu, wherever my dad was stationed, and just devouring all the SIs that were in the stacks in the periodical section of the library. And I'm just reading through them and honestly, you know, imagining myself doing the same thing one day. And the other thing I would say was, when I was in that stage as a young person, the Olympics were a huge gathering point for families and a huge gathering point for, you know, our rather inward looking American culture to expand and learn about the Soviets or the Romanians or the Brits or whatever it was. And a lot of my geography that I learned and a lot of my uh, understanding of the world came from the Olympics and getting to know these athletes I was interested in. I remember one in particular, Vasily Alexiev, the great you know, super heavyweight Russian weightlifter who kind of humanized this, you know, demonized uh, Soviet Union for me as a kid. So I think that was my international opening to sports. Yes. And then the the sort of the personal one was the way it helped me open doors around the, around the country as I moved. And so as I, as I went through high school and I was on the paper in high school, I was a sports editor in high school. I wrote a lot of sports articles, didn't write for the college paper at Williams college where I went to school. I was more busy there working as an athlete and a student, but I also, I did work as a financial aid job in the sports information department. So I wrote a lot of press releases and things like that. So, uh, and I was just an English major and history major in college. And I always was interested in writing for a living and uh, I'll keep this short, but when I've trapped, when I finished my studies, uh, my best buddy and I, who was a, a friend of mine from Massachusetts, Marblehead, we decided to travel for a year I taught tennis for a summer at East Hampton, uh, at a, like an East Hampton tennis club, and probably made more per hour there than I ever have since. And that was enough to fund uh, 10 months of travel around the world and uh, go out and see all these things we'd studied. And um, I came back kind of vaguely knowing I wanted to write, but not quite sure how I was going to do it. And, and I had worked as a uh, as an intern uh, in the summer at the San Diego Union, which was where my dad was based at the end of his career which was the morning paper then in San Diego. And I had done really glamorous things like take fish counts over the phone when the, 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 uh, the charter boats would call in and say how many yellow, yellow tail they caught that night or how many, whatever rock fish. And I remember being very proud doing that. 
but it was uh, my first byline without a byline mm-hmm. was list of the fish in the paper. So I, I had a connection to newspapers. And when I got back from my trip, I uh, actually got a phone call to the house in the pre-internet days from the sports editor of the San Diego Union, who said, look, we have a summer intern who was paid, who was supposed to be here this summer, and whose name is Jeremy Shap. Well, you may remember Jamie, Jeremy Shap, or may know him. And he's unfortunately not able to do the job. And we're looking around for somebody to fill the position. I have no idea where Chris is. I don't know what's going on, but we thought highly of him and wanted to know if he would be interested in applying for it. I had literally just gotten back from this trip. I just come back from Japan. And I, if I had been a week later or two weeks later, I'm sure they would have filled the spot, but I happened to be there. And of course I was interested in this. I was pretty wiped out from my trip. And I said, well, I said, send us your recent sports articles. I go, well, I don't really have anything really recent. I didn't cover it in college. He says, what do you got? I said, well, I got my journal from my trip. He goes, bring it in. So I brought it in and it was a pretty detailed, you know, uh, probably pretty pompous thing. <laughs> Looking back on it at the time, but it was all I had. And I gave it to him and he, uh, they liked it enough to give me the internship. And that's how it started. So I was extremely lucky for the timing. It was what I wanted to do, but I wasn't quite sure how the pathway was going to go at that point. And then that job turned into a staff job in San Diego. And then when I moved to France, uh, my timing was good to get connected and get that phone call from the New York Times that you you mentioned at the start. Right. So we're in the early 1990s. You've you've joined the New York Times. And I don't know if it's the golden era, but it it's newspaper journalism. It's it's filing copy uh, in a the 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 word internet had not been invented then so in your first few years you're you're learning your trade you're going to press rooms you're you're building up uh contacts were there were there people on the staff of the times that you looked up to the the that acted as mentors for you Absolutely. And I should say that really one of the key people for me, and maybe you know him, Andrew, I don't know, was a guy named Barry Lorge, who was the yep. Washington Post Washington Post tennis writer. Okay. And he was my sports editor in San Diego. He was the one who uh, was one of the ones who was instrumental in hiring me. And he was had covered Wimbledon many times and the French Open for the Washington Post. Had worked with Neil Ander, who was the New York Times sports editor, who was covering tennis for the Times in those, in those years. So... You know, Barry was really the guy who opened the doors for me to the tennis world initially because of his interest in the sport. And he sent me to Wimbledon in 1990 because he couldn't go for family reasons when I was, what, 24 years old. Um, he knew I had a passion for tennis and I was playing it a lot at that time. And and so he sent me to Wimbledon in place of him. And I'll forever be grateful for that. You know, Barry has since passed. And Barry's also the one because of his connection to Neil Amder at the New York Times and the fact that they had competed against each other on the tennis beat. He's the one I'm sure who, I don't know this for sure, but I'm almost positive. He's the one who said, hey, Neil, you know, give this guy a shot. He's just moved to Paris, married a Parisian. He doesn't know how hard this is going to be, you know, mm. help help him out. And I, and I think he did for that reason. But as far as the times, I mean, Neil Amder, the sports editor at that time, was a huge influence and a huge uh, inspiration in many ways because he'd covered tennis and the Olympics. He loved global sport. Um he was the one who basically signed off on hiring me as an on-contract European sports correspondent over in in, uh, in Paris because he wanted more Olympics writing. He wanted more soccer with the World Cup coming in 1994 to the U.S. Mm-hmm. first time. And above all, he wanted more tennis because he knew that I would be on site. And so many of these tournaments were you know, European-based mm-hmm. or 
And that was a great place to be. Nobody had quite figured out how to make it work until that point because the Olympics were on a four-year cycle, not a two-year cycle. There wasn't quite enough work for someone like me to have probably found their niche at that point, but I came along at the right time and he was really ready to commit to it. And, and so we did it. And then obviously the, I have to say the guy who really had the biggest influence on me on the time staff was George Vesey. You know, George was a, a guy who grew up in New York city and um, a wonderful person. He had this breadth of knowledge from having covered religion for the times and having been a, a sports columnist, which is a very unusual combination, probably the only time, you know, to have done that. And, and George, I don't know if you know him or not, is just one of those incredibly generous, gentlemanly people, but also has a, a beating competitive heart as a journalist. And really, I took him as my role model from pretty much day one. He didn't know it, but that's that's who I was looking at. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was doing. I used his approach when I became a columnist for the International Herald Tribune later on. You know, he's very, uh, you know, trying to be uh, literary, but also do a lot of reporting and, and a lot of good uh, legwork before he wrote his columns. And he didn't um, perseverate over them afterward. He got them done and moved on to the next one. But above all, he would, I just had great human qualities and I really admired him and still do. And and he was, whenever I needed advice all through my career, he was the, the man I turned to and he he never let me down. So I'd say Neil and, Neil and George were really the two people who had the biggest influence on me. Did you have a chance to tell him that, that uh, the, the amount of influence he, he'd had on, on your career? I've had the chance to tell them both, actually, actually, and more recently, too, because of this decision to leave the Times, of course, you know, you, you get a lot of uh, a lot of wonderful responses and it, it sparks a lot of uh, conversations and and a lot of gratitude. And I definitely feel that to both of them. And George is probably tired of me <laughs> at this point for his help and his advice. But uh, he was terrific. And I, I got an award from the International Tennis Hall of Fame a few years back uh, in honor of Gene Scott and um it was an emotional night, and and George was the one who presented me at that great. ceremony. So, and if we're talking about the early nineteen nineties, this is very much still a time, uh, certainly on the men's side, of American dominance. You've got Sampras's early years. You've got Jim Courier, who looked as though he might dominate in the nineteen nineties. You've got the talent of Andre Agassi, uh, Michael Chang in Paris. Um, did you feel that you were writing at that time mostly for an American audience and that that American audience expected that, that, that the Americans would continue to, to dominate? Well, first of all, it was, it was a great time to be, to be in, in Europe uh, covering the tennis circuit because of that very thing. I mean, those, that generation of guys were not a lot different in age than I was at the time. And so I felt like I was kind of growing up as a, I'd covered sports in San Diego before I started you know, coming to Europe, but I, not for that long. And so I was kind of growing up as a journalist as they were growing up as tennis players. And I was spending a lot of time around them, reporting on them. So I think there was a pretty easy connection to make. And my my serious playing days were not that far in the rearview mirror either. So I could kind of relate mm-hmm. to the level of tennis I was seeing and knowing how far I was from that, but I could understand what they were doing. And um, I'd use some of the same rackets and some of the same stuff. So I, I could really kind of relate to it in a way that was, I think, very helpful as a journalist. And uh, it just kept coming. You know, I started covering tennis in the late 80s. So on the men's side, you're looking at Agassi was the first of those guys to kind of break through. Then Chang wins the French Open a little bit out of nowhere. And then, boom, Sampras wins the U.S. Open in 1990. And then Courier comes in 91. And then you get guys like Todd Martin and Mal Washington who were in the picture as well. David mm-hmm. Wheaton. So it was just you kind of felt like it would never end. And looking back in the past with guys like Connors, 
um, you know, and Lendl, who had become an American, he kind of felt like the American men's tennis chain would just kind of keep going at that stage. There wasn't a lot of concern about the future, really, in that sense. But above all, I think they were just feeding off each other, and it was great to chronicle it. And my advantage as a journalist was I was in Europe, and that's where a lot of the circuit was. And there were no real, not too many other English-speaking or American journalists over there doing this. So I was able to really connect with those guys because I was all on the road with them a fair bit. I remember covering the, uh, you know, the ATP World Tour Finals in Germany and Frankfurt and Hanover, which were kind of the Boris Becker parties, but were also you know great moments for Courier and Sampras and all those guys too, and and Agassi. So I was able to create some some good deep connections journalistically, and, and that really paid off. But one thing I was going to mention though, it was just funny going back to those early years. You said was about the way the business business was changing was when I first went into press rooms, Andrew and Sakib, I basically would be you hear this cacophony of voices. Everybody was bantering, you know, back and mm. forth constantly. And then deadline would come and then you'd hear all the typewriters clacking still. There were people were still writing on typewriters and either, you know, faxing or, or getting their stuff to sort of these thermal rolls to the paper. And looking back, it's just crazy. We even did that. We had acoustic couplers trying to get these rubber couplers attached to a payphone to get the article to go through <laughs> holding it on a dial up. So all these really now completely antiquated systems. But the thing I'll never forget is especially the Brits. There were a number of Brits in those days who dictated everything. Hmm. And they'd be dressed usually very well, sometimes in three-piece suits, sometimes in suits. And they'd be at a, after a soccer match or after a tennis match, you know, uh, Richard Evans kind of fits this profile, if you know Richard Evans at all. Yes, I do. He looks the part, and I'm sure Richard did this as well. But they would literally, I think they had some notes where they'd written down some of it, but not all of it. And they would dictate their stories, clean, off mm-hmm. the top, a thousand words, and often very... Uh, and often sounded more like oratory or speeches than it did like dictation. It was very well done. So it was almost, I wish I had more time to listen. I was on deadline myself a lot, but it was an incredible period where these guys were doing this. Probably five or six of them at, a, at any given time. So you'd hear these mellifluous voices coming through the press room. Really, really amazing. But so, yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely my case with that generation of Americans, right place, right time. And later in the de- in the decade, you've got the... Agassi Sampras rivalry. You have a famous uh, television commercial where they take over a New York street. Did that translate beyond the United States? Do you think was was there a, a sort of a global sense, or was that more something to to sell Americans on the fact that uh, you had this rivalry? Look, my perspective on it was it was very big internationally. Um, I mean, I was really not in the U.S. very much during that period, during the 90s. I was almost exclusively overseas um, pretty much through 2004, 2005 for about 15 years there. And um, yeah, Agassi Sampras was a, was a very good vector and a very good selling point for men's tennis everywhere. Okay. Largely, largely because of Agassi, I think. And just the interest and fascination with him, which was global. Mm-hmm. And not being as colorful a character, being a fabulous tennis player in a way, it was good that he had Andre to as a foil to play off visually and uh, in terms of storylines for a global public, as well as for the U S but tennis as it even more so than, than, you know, than now, I, I guess tennis had its moments in the late eighties and early nineties for sure in the U S but it was still, it was still more macro niche, not be later became micro niche, but it was definitely mm. not main mainstream. And of course it was in a lot of European countries at that point. So any tennis story was going to be more magnified through an international prism than through a U.S. prism. So a little personal anecdote. Uh, in 2006, 
So I just connected to Pete Blodo's blog. And I told people that hardly anyone knew who Roger Federer was. So I went to a Target store after the uh, Federer Roderick 2006 US Open final and asked 11 people if they knew who Roger Federer was. And one looked at me and said, are you crazy? He's this tennis player. And one said, yeah, I think so. And nine looked, you know, nope, who, who is it? So that, that was my 2006 niche story. Saqib, I think you had a follow-up that, that you wanted to, to come in on the, the Sampras Agassi rivalry. Yeah, I want to use that as a stepping stone for a question, I'm sure, which is not new at all. I think John Wertheim, Chris, everyone who's worked, Steve Flink, everybody must have answered this. So I want your view on this, Chris. Uh, when I came to the U.S. in the mid-90s from India, I quickly realized from far we thought U.S. Open is this one big event. Nobody in Massachusetts knew, you know, what Sampras was up to, what Agassiz's last match was. I realized it was Jordan era, and then there's like Patriots. And, you know, I realized tennis is not in the pecking order. It's pretty low. So on your watch, while you have you know, reported on the profession, where does tennis really fall into the American landscape? Did the big three era led by Federer now with Djokovic, has tennis trans- transcended at all in America? Because I remember Wertheim writing about why Sampras or Serena or Federer would never be SI Sports Person of the Year. I don't know if any tennis player recently won that award. I stopped following that award, but uh, it's more of a why question. We all kind of know, but since you also mingle with other journalists who are covering other sports, What's the other side think of tennis and where does the Sampras or Serena Williams, you know, contributions go recognized in the overall landscape of, you know, the big four sports in U.S.? No, it's a great topic. Um, I do believe Serena ended up getting the SI award at one point later in her career. Um, I think she was the only one to John's frustration because there were certainly people who would have deserved it um, from a tennis perspective. But I, I think it's been a slow erosion. Um, and by the time I came into it, you know, the tennis boom was over uh, by the late 80s, for sure, and early 90s. And we were just producing all these great players. So there was some of the infrastructure and architecture was still in place to support that. And so, um, you know, obviously these big platforms like Wimbledon and the U.S. Open were still star makers in some to some degree. But the just the weight of the rest of the sporting culture in the U.S. became very heavy. And um, the NFL in particular just got bigger and bigger. And not just during the season, but the whole year round. So a lot of resources in journalism and sports journalism in the U.S. got dedicated to that. And a lot of air and space got dedicated to that. Um, I don't know what role ESPN played in all that. I know ESPN's always been connected to tennis in some ways, but not always putting it front and center. There have been times when it's been bigger than, than others. But um, I just feel like it sort of slowly disappeared from the mainstream in terms of the uh, the way it was shown to the public. I know that. Um, one thing that always mystified me, frankly, and I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts to tell you the truth. We produced mega stars in tennis. I mean, Agassi's big. Jennifer Capriati in her time was quite big. Um, I don't think Sampras and Courier and Chang hit that level, but Agassi, Capriati, Serena and Venus, there's no better story than that in sports. And they were there for 25 years. And, um, and then you had a guy who was very charismatic, like Andy Roddick, who had personality coming out of his pores and was also had a lot of uh, you know human appeal because he was fighting against these stronger forces than he. And then you had guys like Federer and Nadal, who I think did break through to a, a larger public. And uh, Andrew would be interesting to go make that trip to the same market now or a couple of years ago and see what the percentage would be 
wouldn't be hundred percent by any means, but I bet it'd be higher than one or two. But I, I feel like there's been this ability to create these megastars, but I don't get the sense that the public in the U.S. really watched them play that much. They knew who they were, especially on the Serena Venus end of things or the Agassi things, but they, they hadn't seen their matches. They weren't connected to the sport in a way that they were savvy about it or really able to watch it uh, much, you know, on a, on a regular basis. And might tune in for a match here and there if they were casual fans at Wimbledon or, or the U.S. Open. But that's kind of where it ended. And I think just that lack of exposure over time, you might have the personalities that were created, but the actual connection to the sport itself, the playing of the sport, just, just kept diminishing. And that's because there was so much competition for the eyeballs in the country and also because uh, newspaper resources in the 2000s, 2010s, we may talk about this later in this discussion, just got hit so hard. So sports editors who might have sent somebody to Wimbledon back in the 90s because they had plenty of money. And when I first went to Wimbledon in 1990, the room was full of reporters from major American dailies like the Miami Herald and the San Francisco Chronicle and the Chicago Tribune and the Dallas Morning News. They all sent somebody to Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And that over time just stopped happening. And I think that's because they got squeezed. They had to make tough choices. The mass interest was there for the major team sports in the U.S., there would be mass interest probably in the Olympics. The World Cup kept getting bigger with soccer increasing its space. So I think if, if we kept the same ecosystem in journalism, we would have had 20, 30 years ago. Tennis might have kept more of its space in the mainstream because that all got hit so hard. Hard choices were made and tennis was an easy thing to sacrifice. I think that's a perfect segue to, to sort of move us forward in time now to the mid-2000s. It sounds like it was an interesting time in your life because you'd been based overseas until 2004, 2005 or so, you said, and then it sounds like you you came back to the States. But the the way that, that sports was were being covered was changing. You started to get, uh, you had more uh, TV coverage, but the internet was becoming a thing as well. You had social media, you had reporting, and you started to have streaming. So the, the business models for reporting were going to change. You've mentioned uh, people not sending dedicated sports reporters to some of these tournaments. So as, as, you, as you reflect on the mid-2000s, what, you know, what were you feeling, this, the, the, the slight under-tremors, and were you seeing huge cracks opening in the ground that says earthquakes are coming, the tectonic plates are moving, the business is changing? Yeah, forgive me, Andrew, if I, don't, if I get some of my my years a little bit blurred here. It does blend together over time. But my, and and obviously the evolution that we've come to today is just a radical departure from what we it knew is. back in those days in the '90s when I started. Of people, you know, filing for the morning paper and people going to the newspaper boxes in the morning and lifting it up and grabbing a paper to see what their competition had had broken in terms of news. You know, that's how you found out. So light years away from all that, you know. I feel like I'm not maybe the ideal person to, to talk about all these transitions because I got extremely lucky um, by working for the company that I did. And the New York Times certainly had its highs and lows. Um, and I guess that mid-2000s was, it really hit me how serious things had gotten because the Times sort of had an existential moment there around 2008, 2009 with the uh, financial crisis when they had to take a loan from Carlos Slim, as you probably know, the Mexican uh, you know, telecoms billionaire to kind of keep the place afloat. And there was a lot of doomsday talking in the New York Times headquarters at that time. The International Herald Tribune ended up basically being uh, made redundant 
got folded into the New York Times as a whole and as a brand, the International Herald Tribune went away. Paper that I started working for, the San Diego Union, no longer exists as an entity unto itself. It's part of the San Diego Union Tribune. So I can see those things from a personal perspective, how the economic pressures were changing the business and affecting it. But I I feel like for us at the Times, I think they just managed to make the right moves at just the right time to keep it afloat. And then in, and they finally made the right call about how to manage uh, content on the web and get people to pay for it. And uh, that was uh, a lot of back and forth for a while in terms of how they decided to approach that. Should it all be free, which it was for a while? Should they pay well a big chunk of it? And they, they had a hard time figuring out the right model. Mm-hmm. There. And they finally got there. But they only got there, let's face it, because it's the New York Times, because it's a brand that has that kind of uh, breadth and reach and had that kind of global global clout. Other people could have had the same strategy and it wasn't going to work as we've seen. So I feel like, you know, it was a hard thing to see, but I always felt a little bit protected and and a bit guilty about that at times because I could see such great people and talented people just losing their spots and losing their opportunities because of just the forces that were beyond all of us at that point. And I, and I just, it never made sense to me from the very beginning. Um, once it became clear the ad model wasn't going to work, that we people just wouldn't charge for this looking at the level of investment required to do quality journalism, looking at the infrastructure that was in place and needed to be supported. But I guarantee you in those early years, the feeling was, hey, the ads are going to do for us on the internet what they did for us in print. They are going to run the show. We're going to be able to give it away for free and make all our money off the ads. Mm. I guess, you know, the Facebooks and and um, Googles of the world kind of made that model work, but print journalism did not. And uh, I think it's probably on all of our leaders at the time, not to have been more collective about the approach and have more vision on it because they failed a lot of people. Maybe it would have happened anyway. I don't know. Mm. There certainly would have been a way for them to take more control of the process. And there was a lot of hubris and a lot of desire to kind of hold your own little section of the uh, of the community together in terms of the economics and not think about the greater the greater good of the profession. And, and I think of society because bad journalism makes for uh, an uninformed society or a confused society, and that's not good for anybody. Yeah, and I remember um, I got a few press credentials uh, for working with Pete uh, for North American tournaments. I didn't have a press credential uh, for Roland Garros in, uh, I'm going to say, I think it was 2011, but I, I, I was over there for a week and I had dinner with a friend who I knew from Pete's blog and her husband. And her husband talked to me, uh, you know, I was talking about crafting columns and trying to put a hook in and trying to think, you know, what would make what I was writing memorable. And he sort of looked at me as if um, I, I, I hadn't caught up with the times. And he introduced me to a term which I'd never heard before, which was search engine optimization. <laughs> so he, he worked in a, in a hedge fund and he said, you know, this is this is where the industry is going. And it sounds as though, I mean, you came into the business in, in the, the, the time of the written word and the, the newspaper columns you described, you know, one of the guys that you looked up to doing his reporting, but then crafting what he wrote, but then moving on. But, but the written word and the power of the written word was, was really important, at least as I had seen it in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, but then you come to the 2010s, do you have a sense that that craft was changing and perhaps not being as valued as it had used to be? 
Oh, totally. I think it's, it has no question. It's become very disposable. Um, I don't have any necessarily clear evidence of this, but my sense is sort of like the intellectual uh, sort of staying power of a, somebody's column or story that they write, I think is a lot shorter than it used to be. <laughs> I think it's people consume it and then it's on to the next thing. And just the staying power of these great projects people do in journalism still try to go out and just do tremendous legwork. And then it's just, it seems like it's just gone. It's out there in, in the ether and then it's just gone so quickly. And I felt like it had more, it had more legs back when I was a younger journalist in terms of those investigative exploratory sort of things or a, a beautifully crafted column would sort of stay in the consciousness and be influenced the, the discussion in the public a bit longer. But um, I do feel a little bit insulated, I have to say, and I'm very grateful for that. The New York Times has only slightly ever talked about sort of, you know, what sort of a reach your stories have, what the metrics are. There's been a little bit of discussion about that, mm-hmm. in the but so little compared to most other places. They've really left us free as the reporters and the writers to do the job. I wouldn't say necessarily in a traditional way, but in a very thoughtful and um, in a well-reported way. And there have been some massive changes in terms of you know, how we do our work with what we can search for now, what we can do, and sort of how things are connected and everything else. But the actual crafting of the stories, I have to say, Andrew, hasn't changed all that much. Of course, you're writing things at a different pace because of the, the need to get things on the internet. You know, before, one of the biggest changes from a tennis writing perspective was, you know, initially you would... Uh, when the internet started, you would um, throw up a very, very quick sort of column or very quick sort of thing with the result and the score, a couple paragraphs. And then you'd take you know, several hours to really craft a story about the match that you just saw, the final that you saw, or the semi that you just saw. And that would be the thing that would sort of stand up. But now three or four hours later after the match, it's too late. You already mm-hmm. need to spin it forward by then. So the social media aspect, which you maybe you're going to get to soon, that just sped up the whole process where you need to have all your sort of reporting and stuff, everything done almost immediately and a very thoughtful take as fast as you can get it. And then four hours later, people are on to the next thing. So you're already spinning ahead to the next match or the next tournament or the next thing. So that's what's really changed. But if you're sitting there writing a feature story for the New York Times today versus 25 to 30 years ago, the actual process of writing the story once you're doing it and what they're looking for, I don't think has changed all that much. But for sure, the headline writers and people that are positioning the stories, that's changed massively. The keywords you're looking for with search optimization in the headlines, the uh, time of day the story is going to be released, uh, where it's going to be positioned on the homepage, how they're going to promote it within the paper on its own social media organs. All that is massive change. But live within for a reporter like me, I'm thankful it probably hasn't changed all that much. But with the the journalists, I'm I'm, I'm going to focus just for a minute on credentialed journalists rather than you know the uh, the asteroid belt as it were are the people that that are your peers who maybe don't have the same insulation that the times was able to provide you are they having to file three or four stories a day are they you know is there is is it basically a constant churn a kind of red queen's race to to keep up with, with what the demands are now? You know, I think for a while it really was that way in the sense that people felt like, okay, it's, it's limitless. We can do whatever we want and we're going to get the most out of our people. And we're going to have them file all the time about everything just constantly. But I think the interesting thing now is with the way it's played out is I do think it's become a bit less is more in the sense that if you just flood the zone with stories uh, from whatever your publication is, uh, I think that's just, people have just so much coming at them. 
you need to prioritize for your readers. And so I so said, what matters from our place today? And honestly, uh, I go back to my early years writing for the San Diego Union at Wimbledon. I was writing a story, sidebar, and big notes section every day, three big mm. filings each day. Early years of the Times, it was similar. And every time that I'd be writing a column and a story and a notes for the International Herald Tribune. Now, basically, yeah, you're updating your stories with some live things, but in terms of actual producing bylines, it's usually about one a day. And not, only, not, not, not even every day sometimes for the times that it's slammed, which is crazy. But it's because I think they've realized that the public only has room to consume in a quality way, in a substantive way, a certain number of stories. So the pace and the, and the volume has, has changed quite a bit in the last, I'd say, five years or so, which is, which is interesting to me. And I, I understand it because it's a glut of info and you need to get people to kind of cut through it and say, this from our place is what matters the most. And this is our read, this is our read of the day from here. I can't speak for everybody else, but for sure, for many years, the metabolism just went up. It was a bit hamster on the wheel. But frankly, daily journalism has always been a bit hamster on the wheel. It's sure. just the beast. And there's that pressure of what's happening next, where are you going to be? And um, I do think it's a lot less legwork now because of the fact everything's digitized and on the internet. And we used to, in the early years, you know, share information among each other. You know, you, you, there, were, there were no multiple screens showing you what was happening on court 13 and court 12 and instant stats at your disposal. You had to cooperate mm-hmm. and get out there and see a bit of each match yourself in person to be able to do the job. And now it's a much more sedentary thing. And a lot of the buzzing and the, and the, and the stress is happening uh, out of sight inside people's heads. So, you know, let's bring it up to date to the, to the 2020s. Um, and the, the sport of tennis, it, it, it has a global reach, but feels like there's a kind of inflection point coming because Serena, I think now has to be seen as officially retired, even if she's, she's not done the Pete Sampras speech. Um, Federer is retired. We don't know yet about where, how much Rafa will play in 2024 as his uh, goal is to play. Novak may yet have a few more years in him, but that, that generation of players is retiring. And I think that the, the sport is at an inflection point. Can people be expected to sit for four hours plus watching a, a five-set tennis match? I know that uh, your distinguished colleague, Ben Rothenberg, has, has views on that topic. So, so how do you see tennis potentially changing as, as we go into the next decade or so? Are you picking up signals? You, you, you probably are involved in conversations that Sakib and I don't get to participate in a but are you p- picking up signals for how the sport itself might evolve no for sure there's a lot of discussion about it and tennis has had has been kind of a a kingdom of discussion for a long time but not always a kingdom of action unfortunately that's been part of mm. the problem in a lot of ways not a lot of uh, cooperative um, movement in a, in a major way for too many years there have been some signs of change recently in terms of how some of the things are, are evolving I, be- I believe but as far as as far as the uh, the star issue, you know, for sure, you can't take Serena out of the equation at the same time you lose Federer and Nadal if he doesn't come back in a substantive way in 2024 and not feel impact on the tour in some way. It's just, just massive personalities gone. But my, my view on that's a bit tempered because I remember when I um, saw Sampras and Agassi and, and Courier all fade out, Agassi being the last one to go there was a sense that, you know, tennis would not recover. 
maybe you could argue in some ways it hasn't fully recovered in the U.S. I don't know. But globally, that argument does not hold up at all. And Federer, Nadal and Djokovic and others emerged and and the Williams sisters endured. And, and tennis, as far as it, the global interest in those major stars, produced another generation that was able to have the staying power and really reach a lot of people. So my cynicism on what might happen next is tempered by that because I've seen it happen before where they're, it's not going to be, you can't beat it. And then they beat it. And I watch a guy like Alcaraz and I see how he's slotted in at Indian Wells this year to the major matches on the major courts, the buzz there was about him, the excitement there was about him. Of course, we all have our doubts about his physical staying power because of his style of play. Um, You never know what can happen to a 20 year old two or three years down the line. But in terms of just the, the software, This is a guy who people are excited about watching, and I could certainly see him and a new generation of players building up similar kind of buzz to a Federer, Nadal, Djokovic over time. Probably not at all the same resumes, but similar buzz on site at these tournaments and creating must-watch tennis television. On the women's side, haven't seen those players yet emerge. Um, To replace a Serena and Venus, we'll see what happens. There's some, but I, I have no doubt it's possible. But as to the format of the sport and systemic change in a society about how much people want to watch a given product, how you should position the sport. And those are discussions that the sport really needs to have seriously. And I think what's probably holding it back more than anything else is the Grand Slam's desire to remain distinct. Mm. Yes, best of three is the same for women everywhere they play, but for the men, it's not. And I think the Grand Slam's will hold on to the best of five because on site, it's a great product. Their TV rights for now are very healthy and, and and their bottom lines are booming. And the best of five gives them a distinguishing feature from regular tournaments. And the fact that the ETP has now gone to these, you know, mini slams with a 12 day swing now becoming a 12 day tournaments, becoming a regular thing, all the more reason for the slams to cling to some sort of form of identity. Mm. So this may actually hold things back. I I think that's definitely going to be a bit of an impediment deep down. I love best of five tennis. I love the connection to history. I'm, some of the best I've ever watched has been in that format. Davis Cup, before it changed as well, was something that routinely for me produced just great moments as a journalist and as a, as a spectator. So I see the power of it. But I also honestly know once it's gone, um, I would if you asked me to vote, I would vote keep it. It's because of what I've experienced in my own marrow and my own life as a journalist. But, you know, I think once it, it's gone and that's all you have is best of three and you have these big events. Over time, the third set tiebreaker of a Grand Slam final in a best of three match will become a very big moment. Will it have this emotional carriage and weight as of, you know, that 2012 Australian Open final with Rafa and Novak after all those hours of investment or mm-hmm. the 19 Wimbledon final? I can't answer that. You don't know until that's all there is and the biggest tournaments are played that way. But I can certainly say that on the women's side, they played best of three for all this time and some best of five you know, tiny moments of trying that out. And I can't say it's diminished their finals or diminished their moments. So it's, you know, there it's hard until you try it. You don't know. I suspect it would be okay, but me, I'm not, I'm too deeply invested in all those memories and emotions and, and sort of the physical challenge and the gladiatorial aspect of it for me to sign off on it. But people who have, uh, you know, less uh, scar tissue than I will be able to make that kind of call, I guess, down the road. But the sports yeah. needs to reflect on it very seriously, I think. Yeah, we're getting close to the time uh, that I think that we're going to have to 
wave goodbye to you this time, although I hope you'll come back on the podcast. I, I had one last question. I don't know if uh, Sakib has anything else that he'd like to follow up on, which is, you know, looking back over 30 years or so, what has surprised you? You know, what are, what are the things where you look back and there may be a few things you say, hey, I wanted to be a print journalist. I was a print journalist. It was great a lot of the time. It sucked some of the time. So there's, there's, there's memories like that. But, but what really surprised you? What, what took you aback when it happened? And you said, wow, I would never have expected that. I suppose, I mean, there are many, many things, of course. I, I, I think relevant to our conversation, the one thing we haven't talked about uh, is sort of social media and the way that's impacted things. And I think just because of my long timeline, I could really see that um, from a longer perspective. And I, and I think I'm, I'm surprised in a way how much power has gone to the athletes in terms of the message. Um, I think I grew up at a time when we were the intermediaries, pretty purely and simply. I mean, when Roger Federer would sort of contact the New York Times when he had mono because he wanted to get the word out, mm-hmm. <laughs> that would not be happening anymore. Roger would not be calling uh, us to let, let the world know he had mono and he was trying to explain why he wasn't having his best results. Um, so, But I, I think even if you look at it now and it seems like a logical progression with the development of these uh, uh, inter- inter- these social media sites and and allowing every athlete to be their own PR agent in a while, in a way, and go directly to the public, it still surprised me, the speed and the power of that and how it made uh, the journalistic layer, you know, have to really fight for its, uh, its reason to exist. And, and the, and now it's become a very tricky thing because if you're a superstar, you don't need the press. Mm-hmm. You really don't. Um, once you get to a certain level of a Naomi Osaka or a Federer Nadal, it's great to keep the connection, but, you can get your message out to your people and, and your way without that other layer. However, in this incredible large uh, ecosystem of information and, and words and, and images and video, if you're an aspiring athlete coming from the bottom, you need them more than ever in some ways. How else do you break through? You can have your own little website or your own social media site. If you have no followers, you can post all the content you like. You're not going to break through. So there's this interesting thing now where you have a dynamic of, the ones that are trying to come up need the messengers and need that broader exposure. And the ones at the very top, it's become a level beyond. And that's, that's a really interesting dynamic. And I would not have seen that honestly, when I started in my career, I could never have imagined that happening. And it, it has radically changed the business of being an athlete and the business of being a, a sports writer for sure. Okay. Sakib, do you have any, uh, last follow-up questions yeah. or yes, uh, uh, I, I do, wrap-up yeah. thoughts? Sure. So it's a follow-up to a couple of questions you asked in a previous question, this last one. So Chris, again, you know, working for the Times, equal, you know, like world-class organization and your body of work is equally world-class. But there's a new lane that got created in the last 10 years where I sit in the hobbyist, right? We have a microphone, we have a laptop, start a podcast, media credentials are being given to, you know, folks like myself who do this as a hobby. Now, someone with, uh, you know, your tenure in the sport and the organization you represent, how do you see this new lane that's got created? Is it disruption? Is it adding any value? Because, you know, at best, you know, I don't call myself ever a journalist. I, you know, I'm a hobbyist. I go there to these events, ask questions to players and represent a fan's view, not a fanboy's view, but a fan's view. So how do you and 
the fraternity see this new, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say invasion of space, but, you know, it's kind of becoming like a larger ecosystem, which, you know, we are also operating in the outer circles. So has it made, I don't know, has it made the experience better? Well, I mean, I don't want to use the words you see, you tell me how you see this, you know, the change that came about the last seven, eight years. No, it's it's a good and a fair question. Yeah, I do think that um, legacy media's increasing weakness and sort of uh, disappearance of a lot of the the traditional reporters from Grand Slam newsrooms and, and Grand Slam press centers and things like that over and, and regular tournament press centers has created the opportunity for a new age uh, writers and bloggers and people to come into that space. I think if the legacy media had kept its strength. And kept those positions, there would have been very little room for that. I think that would have people would have been happy to continue, but because it it became weaker and because it stopped sending people all over the world to cover tennis and cover sports, there was room in those spaces for those people to be accredited and to come into the sport. And frankly, I mean, you can see uh, it's changed the dialogue for sure within the uh, the news conference. I think in a lot of ways. But am I am I going to sit here and tell you it's it's all negative? No, I, don't, I mean I think it's, it reflects probably a more diverse set of viewpoints that they're going to be asked about because of that people coming into the sport from different vantage points and different backgrounds. I think it, it holds traditional media more accountable and requires them to do create more value to distinguish themselves. So how do you create that value? Well, I would say, what do you have if you're a, a New York times reporter that you don't have, if you're a, a podcaster or blogger with a decent sized audience? Well, for one, you have a responsibility to hold the sport and the people in power are really accountable which is somebody who's as a podcaster might have that vocation, but it's not the requirement. But if you're writing for the times or the times of London or the Washington post, it's your responsibility to do that. And it's expected. So that creates a, a certain level of gravitas, I think in that thing. And that's important to preserve that because it, even though it's just sports in quotes, it's still a cultural phenomenon. It's still you know, people's lives are at stake and livelihoods. And it needs to be you know, in that sense reported on seriously. And the second thing is what I just mentioned before, talking about social media, the superstars of the sport no longer need the media in the same way. And yet there's still a desire through uh, the major uh, organs of the press, if it's a New York Times or an ESPN, or if it's L'Equipe, which covers tennis so well in France on a daily basis, or El País in Spain, through their sponsors and through their own approach, they want to have some exposure in those places. So we have access and I did have access over 30 years to the, the best players in tennis, not as often as I would have if I were doing this in the 60s or 70s or 80s, but I had, still had plenty. I interviewed Federer over 20 times and Nadal in the teens and Serena several times as well. So that's because I was working for the New York Times and those papers need to use that. And I think that's also a distinguishing point. But as far as, you know, if if there's a French Open press center and and it becomes populated half by bloggers and half by legacy media and and the bloggers are there because they cover the sport day to day and 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 fill um, fill those roles and do it with passion. A part of me doesn't like it because I feel like there's not any accountability there to some degree. Uh, there's nobody standing over them and saying, "Well, if you don't get this fact right, you're gone. We're going to replace you with another professional journalist who's going to do the job the way it should be done." So that's gets to me is there's not always easy uh, readability to that for the public. Who's doing what job for whom? But I, that gets a wider discussion than just little tennis writing, to be honest with you. That's sort of how does society define what quality information is and in quality journalism? 
But I, you know, I think in a lot of ways, people who are deeply knowledgeable and deeply passionate about tennis who come into that space, they keep us all honest and, and they can improve the dialogue. But I do feel like there's a lot of different agendas in there right now. It's getting broken up in a lot of ways. So the time for kind of meaningful, you know, great conversation and dialogue with the players on issues of substance is maybe not as good as it used to be. And I do miss that. But it's also because they've also reduced the time and space that the athletes spend with the media face-to-face uh, on the whole. But I, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I, I just hope that whatever happens down the road, there will still be people doing what I tried to do and sometimes failed to do over the last 30 years, which is hold the sport accountable, get face-to-face with the real movers and shakers and top athletes of the sport, give people out there a real understanding of who they really are, do your best to get as close to the truth as you can. And I just question whether people that are coming, coming from niche backgrounds and are going to be able to have the, play those roles and they, and they need to be played. I think that's the perfect way to conclude this episode. And Chris, again, thank you for your time. And me and Andrew hope, you know, we can host you again. Yeah, it was a, it was a great, great discussion, guys. It was a, a lot of good topics and, Hopefully I didn't drone on too much about the good old days there, but they, they were pretty good and pretty old. No, we like the deep dives because, you know, this is a different kind of shop. We want a deeper discussion. Thank you again. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, Chris, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for inviting me, and I'll see you guys down the road, okay? Okay.